0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. I mean, if you dive into this without the background, without the education, and as you mentioned, and you just, you know, you're going to go to a weekend course and think you're going to acquire the skills and the knowledge base to do this, chances are patients are going to suffer. And that's really, you know, it's a valid concern. I think, you know, we talk about, you know, a lot, there are a lot of endovascular specialties granted i'm going to be biased because i am i'm am an ir as well as an ir but you know the foundation for radiology for radiologists is very good when they do this if they if they go through the guidelines you know that are in the training document in the stroke training document that you authored it was this is you know you follow these things and you put these pieces in place and you establish this foundation your chance for success is a lot higher.
1: This is Venu Vadlamudi, and I'm your host this week. And I'm excited to introduce our guest today: Dr. Marty Radvani, who's a neurointerventional radiologist at University of Arkansas, and Dr. David Sachs, who's an interventional radiologist in Reading, Pennsylvania. This is part two of the topic on interventional radiologists and stroke. Uh, thanks for listening in. And continuing on, here we go. What are some of the credentialing and regulatory issues, maybe generally or more even more specifically to interventional radiologists in stroke? I know both of you have been very much involved in this. Marty, you've, you've led a lot of efforts on behalf of our specialty in society with the Joint Commission. So if you both wouldn't mind to speak to this point.
0: Well, we, yes, I'm the SIR's representative to uh, Joint Commission's uh, task force for uh, Working Group for Comprehensive and Stroke and Thrombectomy uh, Capable Stroke Centers. And this is an area that I think it's very fortuitous that SIR got involved when they did. The initial requirements, there was Jayco in in an effort to provide a standard of care because we all want good, good care for our patients and we want people who are well-trained and teams of pay and we all know that when you have a good workflow set up and you have a team that works together patients receive optimum care and we get the best possible outcomes in an effort to achieve these things the joint commission was in the was rewriting their standards and there were several recommendations made one of these was a minimum case volume for physicians And that currently for joint commission accredited hospitals for TSCs and CSCs is 15, an average of 15 thrombectomy cases per year, per physician over a two-year period, which at some of the smaller institutions, those that are not as busy could be challenging. And this is something that the joint commission is looking at. For the more rural centers, is it really numbers or are, does it, is it, our outcomes, a better measure, because as we discussed earlier, access to care is still a huge issue. And in the rural communities, it's even more of an issue. So that was one of the things that the joint commission had put in place. There was another, uh, another uh, credentialing issue about who was actually performing the procedures and some sort of an accreditation. And I'm kind of getting ahead here a little bit, delving into Credentialing for IRs and neurointerventionalists in general. There was a push for there's, so let me rewind a little bit. There was kind of a concern that there really, what are the standards for individuals performing thrombectomies at institutions providing stroke care? That one of the challenges is that there currently is no subspecialty certification in interventional neuroradiology and vascular neurosurgery, whatever you know, however you want to call it from the ACGME level. There are ACGME guidelines that have been established for many years and programs that can be ACGME accredited for endovascular surgical neuroradiology. It's a lot of paperwork. And even if all these guidelines are met, it does not result in a subspecialty certification. And as a result of this, even last year, even though these training guidelines have been around for couple decades, there, last time I checked, there were six ACGME accredited programs in the country. And so the question is, what was the skill level of people who are actually getting trained? I mean, there are a lot more than six fellowships out there where people are getting trained in interventional radiology or endovascular neurosurgery. And the concern was that there was a, what, what were the standards for this? because ACGME was not being followed. So a committee was formed, the Committee on Advanced Surgical Training, or CAST. And this was uh, under the Society of Neurological Surgeons and was, adre- was developed to address these issues. CAST took input from neurosurgery, neurology, neuroradi- and radiology to perform a committee called NESAC, which was the Neuroendovascular Surgical, Surgery Advisory Committee. Initially, NISAC certified training programs, as well as practitioners. So individuals were obtaining this thing, you know, you could turn in your list of cases that you had done for those of us who had been, uh, out of, pre- you know, who had already been in practice, who were no longer in training for those who were in training there, they could have their training at programs that were cast certified this, what this led to ultimately is this cast certification and It was under the guise of the Society of Neurological Surgeons. And it was kind of, it was kind of opaque. I know I, I submitted my application for it and mine went through, but I had, you know, at that point, I had been a program director for a ACGMA accredited program. So I would have, you know, at Hopkins, so I would have been a little surprised had mine not gone through, but there were other individuals who had been practicing in the stroke area who did not have a couldn't get there or felt they couldn't get their certification so this led to some challenges and the reason I bring all these details up in the background is because at one point the joint commission was wanting to require individuals performing thrombectomy to have cast certification that would have eliminated if if you look at the numbers there A lot of these institutions, as we discussed, were relying on interventional radiologists. A lot of certified stroke joint commission, certified stroke centers were relying on interventional radiologists who did not have this quote unquote cast certification. And this led to, uh, some concern that if this was a, became a formal requirement at this time, a lot of certified stroke centers would lose their certifications. They just wouldn't have enough individuals to cover uh, the call who were CAST certified. So currently, this is an area that things have changed a little bit. The CAST certification is now under another subcommittee called CSAC, which has input from the American Board of uh, Psychiatry and Neurology, the American Board of Radiology, as well as the American Board of Neurosurgery. And... The understanding is that for those individuals who spend at least fifty percent of their time in the area of neurointervention, however you want to define it, they would be eligible for this focused practice area. Whether that leads whether that leads on to become having those individuals having cast certification, if they're doing less than that, that's where kind of the challenges come in because, Again, we want to have practitioners who are taking care of patients who are well-trained, but there I think there was a little bit of an overreach trying to uh, get everybody having this cast certification. Having said that, there are those individuals who believe that if you're going to be doing stroke therapy, you actually need a full neurointerventional fellowship, and therefore you would not be able to get the subspecialty certification had you not done the full fellowship in in the future. I disagree with this. I wouldn't be, you know, I, I wouldn't be putting together all these educational materials and courses if I didn't believe that interventional radiologists who have been involved in this area for several decades, should continue to be involved in stroke therapy in general, and definitely I believe have the capability to continue being involved in this area, without having to have a formal neurointerventional complete fellowship, as long but there are definitely guidelines as Sir and uh, with Dr. Sachs was uh, discussing.
2: Marty, you had mentioned that the Joint Commission may be taking a second look at their volume requirements. Is that yeah. for real? Or well,
0: I don't know about for CSCs for TSC. There is a working group. For rural stroke centers, and they are the discussion. There is: does it really need to be? You know, if you have a TSC in a more rural area, does it really? What do the what do the numbers really need to be? And were, are volumes going to be more important? The work group has only had one meeting at this point, but it was. It's still, you know, th- this is still something that's under discussion. It was just, uh, it's really in the early phases of what is, you know, the discussion is, what are the appropriate parameters for the more, you know, if you have a more rural hospital, because the Joint Commission recognizes that this is something that is still a challenge, as, as we discussed, for patients in rural areas to have access to
2: mechanical thrombectomy. Just for the audience, CSC is a comprehensive stroke center, and a TSC is a thrombectomy capable stroke sensor so that you can be certified as a facility that performs thrombectomies for acute ischemic strokes, but you might not do any aneurysm care. I think all of us would agree that the more you do, the better you're going to do them. But I think it comes down to at what point does the additional expertise that you get from volume get outweighed by the lack of access
0: well and that's really what the discussion is is you know how much is enough and you know there have been no decisions made on that in any way at all the discussions you know as i said are very very early on as to one what it will qualify potentially as a rural hospital and then what really are the requirements, uh, the volume or outcome requirements for maintenance of certification in these centers? Because it's really, you know, some of the other argue, you know, some of these hospitals, you have uh, physicians who are doing other procedures. Let's say they're doing aneurysm coilings for whatever reason, the number of aneurysms that they have uh, in that particular population, elective or ruptured. They're doing more of those in a year's time than they are strokes, okay. And you know, let's say they're not achieving fifteen. The physician, an individual physician, is not achieving fifteen strokes per year. But let's say they're coiling twenty-five aneurysms a year and only doing ten strokes a year. Okay, what what does that mean? So there's a lot of uh, a lot of discussion. You know, that still has to happen to determine what really is reasonable for these kinds of centers in more rural areas specifically?
2: I think one of the things that's missing in the Joint Commission's approach is that while they require the facility to report their outcomes, they don't have a threshold for what's acceptable. And therefore, we really have no idea what the effect of volume is on outcomes, are low volume centers having acceptable outcomes or not? If they're acceptable, then why have a volume requirement that's higher than what it takes to have acceptable outcomes?
0: Well, I, um, I think there, I and mean, I looking at the scorecard we have every, every month, our, uh, stroke team, I mean, that is all the different people you know, that I mentioned previously, laboratory, everybody, EMS, we have our monthly meeting and we do have a scorecard that we look at the measures. There are the STKs, the stroke measures, the Mm -hmm. stroke measures, and they do have guidelines as to what is, you know, we're, we're either in the green, we're in the yellow, or we're in the red, depending on, and so I know uh, that there are definitely some guidelines for what is felt to be appropriate. Now, whether, what I don't know is if you're not achieving, you know, let's say you're in the red on X number of these, does that put your accreditation at risk? Or do you have to have a performance improvement plan uh, to address these things?
2: As far as I know, the Joint Commission has not started enforcing what what the outcomes are.
0: Well, again, I think it's, you know, if you think about it, We're pretty early in this whole thing from a disease standpoint. I mean, it was really sure there were hospitals that were getting their uh, accreditations back before 2015, but it was really 2015 kind of changed the tide and things have really ramped up since that period of time. And I think it's much more, uh, it's a moving target right now because everything is just, you know, changing, as we mentioned, you know, our our treatments are, you know, what would we considered acceptable previously? Just technique wise, we look at now like, what were we thinking? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and, you know, I think at the hospitals that I've been at, you know, over, over time, as you mentioned earlier, as our volumes have increased, our metrics have improved, you know, you, you'd like, you know, and it's that continuous process, I think of which is very important is, you know, the whole team that's involved. And as you said, you do it with your team, and we do it here on a monthly basis is go over, you know, our scorecard, uh, our dashboard, whatever you want to call it, and look at what's going on, what are our outcomes, where do we think we could improve things? In addition to that, I know on the neuro-interventional side, we have our monthly m M&M. and And, you know, those cases that we, in which we did not achieve an outcome of TIKI 2B or better, or there was a post-procedure complication... We review all those cases as a group and you know it's like okay what happened to this case you know what why why do we think what could we have done better in this case
2: there have been some articles that have looked at outcomes compared to volumes and but several of them have shown is that higher volume places do indeed have better outcomes than lower volume places some of the low volume places had outcomes that were completely acceptable, simply not as good. They showed that everyone got better over time and that the low volume facilities had outcomes that were comparable to the high volume facilities two years before. With that kind of a perspective, it has me wonder if the outcomes from two years ago were good enough. And we have a problem with access. Why not have the low volume centers continue to participate and continue to improve so that in two years in the future, they're as good as the high volume centers are today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's very reasonable to do that, especially as you point out in light of the fact that access is still a huge problem. Now I, you know, I'd have to draw a couple lines there, you know, you don't need and one of the reasons that you know the TSCs were created was to, you know, if they if you did not to to improve care of patients to improve access. An unfortunate byproduct was that some in some areas TSCs were popping up just down the street from CSCs, and was that really such a good thing in those areas? Well, great guys. Yeah. Great discussion points. Of course, lots of different
1: names out there as we, as, you know, Dave, thank you for clarifying, you know, for the audience, TSC, CSC, since we have talked about that quite a bit through our discussions, CAST, CNS, all, all these different sort of groups getting involved. I think, you know, to the point about we're early in, in really this revolution of stroke care, I, I think I agree with that statement, Marty. You know, five years is a short amount of time and also seems like a lifetime ago that Mr. Clean came out. But nonetheless, what we're seeing is that, you know, this change in in paradigm shift of stroke care, obviously is number one, it's great for patients and outcomes. But number two, we really then have to look at all of these other issues relating to regulation, volumes, access, workforce, et cetera. Uh, And it's a very, very complex, you know, conundrum that we're in. It's certainly, there's no easy solution. It's not simply train more neurointerventionalists and that's all you need and problem solve, as we talked about earlier. Well, what about the technologists and nurses and, and staffing and burnout issues with them? So there's really a lot of different moving parts to try to continually improve our stroke systems of care and our, our facilities themselves in terms of what we can provide. So I think that's a good point about this being early in, in a evolutionary kind of field of stroke thrombectomy.
0: And, well, another thing you just touched on it briefly when you mentioned aneurysms and other cerebrovascular disease, you know, one of the other challenges there is if you, you know, the number of aneurysms and AVMs and fistulas and all these other, you know, fancy high-end cases has remained pretty much static over the last several decades. That really hasn't changed. Stroke, on the other hand, um, was previously something, one, we didn't treat. And two, you know, as our population's getting older, we're seeing more and it's, there's more of it. We're seeing more of it. And one of the other challenges would, you know, is if every single person who's doing stroke is formally trained as a uh, NIR, is there enough volume in all these other areas to keep people competent? Yeah. Great, great
1: counterpoint. And I think exactly Certainly, you know a point of discussion or argument that I think you and I have made. Being dual trained, but nonetheless, you know I think that's a good good way of looking at it. Are you going to now have so many formally trained neurointerventionalists That great. That is, you know, what the neurointerventional societies are advocating as far as for thrombectomy. But the flip side is that are they now going to be able to keep up volumes and competency in uh, aneurysm and other hemorrhagic pathologies uh, or push the envelope of really what they're treating perhaps treating more aneurysms that may not necessarily need treatment uh, simply to try to keep up on volumes and so that that you know can you know get into another hypothetical scenario but you know of course it, at this point in time you know it is good to have in mind that I think that the general theme of this you know point of topic was that it's in flux, you know. We're, we're working on it with the society and your efforts, Marty, in particular, with Joint Commission. You know, we're at the table as far as discussion goes, but it's also continuing to evolve. I know, Dave, you've been in touch uh, with folks over at DNV, and and you know, for those who may not know, as far as in the audience, Joint Commission is not the only game in town as far as a hospital or facility accreditation. They're the biggest game in town, but certainly not the only one. And so there are these other groups that can certify facilities and hospitals. And so, Dave, if you don't mind to sort of just get into a little bit of the maybe lesser known bodies uh, and what they've been looking for as far as credentialing and, and regulatory requirements.
2: There are at least two other certifying bodies. One's DNV, the other one is Healthcare Facilities Accreditation Program. I'm not familiar with their program other than I've looked at what they have which is kind of similar to joint commission and dnv with the exception that these other two at least as far as i know up until now have not put in their criteria for who should be privileged to be doing endovascular interventions the dnv in particular has stated that they think that that's a local decision at the hospital level and that they should not get into the realm of saying, this specialty is okay, that specialty is not, you need to have done this many cases in your training. They feel that's outside of their responsibility and that should be handled by the local credentialing committees. And I also don't believe that they have put in the requirements for the volumes of cases per physician per, per year. That might be something that's coming, as, as I said, more volume, usually translates into better outcomes, but I think an alternative way is simply to say, these are the outcomes that you're accountable for, however you happen to achieve them. One other point I wanted to make is that if a facility finds that they would rather be accredited by DNV for their stroke center, but they're a joint commission hospital, the two are not linked. One can be accredited by one organization the hospital and have the stroke facility certified by the other organization.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, a mix and match uh, solution, if you will. I'd like to uh, move into a somewhat different area, but ties back into some of our earlier discussions. What do the two of you see as the uh, potential future directions for specifically IR trainees In and around stroke and neurovascular diseases, what are some of the educational opportunities or
0: what's on the horizon? Well, from a training standpoint, if we rewind back to residency, some of the things that are going on are changes. I don't know if people are aware, but for diagnostic. So the pathway currently for radiologists to become interventional neuroradiologists is, you know, the traditional internship residency. And then a diagnostic uh, neuroradiology fellowship, and then moving into neurointerventional. Well, one of the things that is happening is that cerebral angiography is no longer going to be a requirement of a diagnostic neuroradiology fellowship. That presents a huge potential problem because then who in radiology has a mandate any longer to be doing? Diagnostic cerebral angiography. And so, one of the things that has been occurring is I think Vicky Marks had had taken this back, I believe, to the RRC to have cerebral angiography included in the IR fellowship and IR residency. I know when I was an IR fellow, I was doing an average of at least three cerebral angiograms a week. And when I went back to do my neurofellowship at the same institution at Hopkins, I was actually very surprised to see how little peripheral vascular as well as cerebral angiography the IR fellows were doing. Because I remember how much just 10 years before I had been doing. And so I think this is an important thing for IR in general. Because out in the community, quite often it's the diagnostic radio, the interventionalist who gets asked to do the diagnostic cerebral angiogram. And, and a lot of times, you know, ends up with OJT from his partners. So I think having it as a formal portion of the IR residency, you know, being included, I think is actually, is very, very appropriate. There are some programs to include a program here at UAMS in which the upper level residents, both in IR and just in the diagnostic radiology, rotate on the neuroservice, on the interventional neuroradiology service and get experience doing cerebral angiograms. And I think that's fantastic. One of the other things that is more of a long-term plan, as I mentioned earlier, the training pathway is to get an additional pathway for radiologists to NIR fellowship if they would like to. So they have mentioned the clinical competencies that are in that document as, as well as on, and the new updated stroke training guidelines, excuse me. And to be able to have those, meet those requirements during an IR residency with having clinical time on neurosurgery and neurology, uh, as well as the diagnostic neuroradiology time and time on the interventional neuroradiology service or doing neurointerventional type procedures during an IR residency with uh, the other rotations, if those guidelines, if those prerequisites could be met during that time, with enough uh, cases during the IR residency, then those IRs who have a desire to complete a full formal neurointerventional fellowship would have the prerequisites. And they knew you were involved in some of this, discuss some of these discussions, I think, with some members of SNIS as well. And I think there's been really good acceptance from the neurosurgical and neurology community regarding this model, because I think you know, it does demonstrate those uh, commitment on the part of those individuals who want to go on to do formal fellowships in neuroIR. I think that they, there is the potential to get the required prerequisite training in the six years, you know, if you include internship and residency, the clinical as well as the cognitive and technical uh, background to be well-suited to go do a formal NIR fellowship.
1: I think that's a uh, Uh, A great overview of kind of where things are perhaps heading as far as at a minimum cerebral angiography exposure during IR training, IR residency specifically. And as you pointed out, the potential of uh, what I kind of term the six plus one pathway, six years of IR residency plus one year of neurointerventional fellowship on top as being a potential avenue in order to be trained in both uh, peripheral and neurointerventional radiology. In fact, I've had a few medical students and interns reach out to me through the SIR forum, and and so they've messaged me asking, kind of, what does that pathway kind of look like? You know, I I did my own version, if you will, of that pathway, but of course not official in any kind of form or fashion. But in a sense, it was a very focused effort beginning back as an as an intern, and so I think that with hopefully more formalized pathways through. Uh, the residency programs, program directors, uh, shifting things like cerebral angiography back into the umbrella of the interventional radiology training, uh, there will be hopefully a, a more official or formalized pathway in order to train in both interventional radiology and neurointerventional radiology into the future. And and as Marty, as you pointed out, this has actually had some very positive influence and and acceptance from neurology and neurosurgery, who are the of course, counterparts in this, you know, team-based neuro approach. And so I think that's, that's an important, uh, thing to keep in mind that, you know, we want to have, if you will, buy-in from other people who are involved in the field. And so I think that hopefully will be the pathway of the future. Dave, any, any thoughts on sort of, uh, the training aspect or future directions, things that you would like to see, given that you've had long standing involvement in stroke?
2: Uh Uh I, I, I would love to see IR fellows have a chance to do the diagnostic cerebrals. Marty's dead on when he says that you go out into a community hospital and now you're expected to be doing these cases. You'll have trauma cases that involve head and neck catheterizations. I, I think it's very important to the international radiologist to have a degree of comfort and expertise in doing brachiocephalic angiography. And I think it would be great if IR fellows could work with their neurointerventional colleagues to be able to cross scrub in some some of the cases. I think that there are skills that we we have in body IR and skills that the neurointerventional people have that would be very useful to each of us. See, our culture in interventional radiology is. How do we solve a problem with the range of tools we have available to us? You learn some neuro, you have a whole different range of tools and the neuro IR folks have no idea what the tools are that we use in body that might help them be successful in doing a neuro case. I think it would be great if we had more cross fertilization in our fellowship programs.
0: I agree with you completely, David. You know, that's, that's one of the things. You know, I know when I went back, you know, I suddenly had all these great tools and I was like, boy, if I had had this, you know, on certain cases, this would have made life so much easier. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I still do, you know, is I go shopping in other areas. So I go shopping in the vascular surgery suite. I go shopping in cardiology just to see, hmm, what do you guys have here that might be useful one day? Yeah, great, great points. And I I completely agree with the,
1: you know, cross pollination effect of, of, you know, having kind of a combined training, combined knowledge base, seeing what are the different tools that may exist that, frankly, you may not be familiar with. I, um, probably like both of you, I know, Dave Marty, you were just saying that you go shopping. uh, That's what I call it. I go shopping in the cardiac cath lab, you know, not infrequently. Uh, A lot of their balloon mounted stents, drug eluting stents uh, can be very useful, even in, you know, intracranial revascularization, extracranial revascularization, tibial revascularization. And so I think it's good to know about these other tools, how to use them. And so that cross pollination effect of ideally this kind of head to toe interventionalist perhaps is one of the added benefits of future training. So with that, I'd like to sort of move to our last point of discussion and I call it the elephant in the room. Is the interventional radiologist the new interventional cardiologist or vascular surgeon pushing into a field without the expertise to do a good job. I think this is one of the concerns other practitioners may have, uh, neurointerventional specifically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to hear what the two of you think.
2: I think it's very easy to dismiss the concerns of the neurointerventional leaders as turf protection. And I think it's wrong to do that. Yeah, I think that they have a very real concern about patient care. Uh, they've spent a year, two years of fellowship training to learn how to do neurointerventions. And from their perspective, they're seeing people who say, I'll take a couple of courses. I'll read a book. I'll talk to my friends. And now I'll start doing what you do. And yeah that's potentially offensive. At the same time, it could lead to bad care. And we have had this concern about other specialties that have said that they can do the things that we do, whether it comes to peripheral arterial disease interventions or embolizations. And we say, who do you think you are that you can get into doing these procedures with a shortcut in training. I think that perspective has to be respected. The proof is in the pudding. We don't want people training on the job and leaving a trail of carnage behind them. We do want people to get trained. Is it realistic that an interventional radiologist who did not do formal neurointerventional training can have acceptable outcomes? There have been some articles over the last 15 years, case series. And in those case series, the publications had acceptable outcomes for the era in which they were published, whether it was intraarterial thrombolytics or early mechanical devices, but obviously you don't publish if you have bad outcomes. It's a self-selected group. We have the check registry that said their outcomes are as good as anyone's and their IRs. But that's a different country, and we don't know exactly what the requirements were for the IRs there to be able to do stroke interventions. And what works in one country may not be an appropriate solution for the United States. One of the things that I've been working on is a comparison of IR with neurointerventional physician outcomes within the same institution. So those institutions that use both specialties, and therefore you can take away the variability of the processes of care in your hospital, your case mix in your hospital, et cetera. The differences should be due to specialty. And we had an abstract that was presented at the International Stroke Conference in February, in which the outcomes were pretty comparable. The interventional radiologists treated patients who were a couple of years older, which might make their outcomes worse. The overall rate of good clinical outcomes, which was returned to independence at ninety days, was better for the neurointerventional physicians. Their rate was fifty percent, the IR rate was forty-three percent. But Your good outcome is so dependent on who it was that you happened to treat, whether it was age or stroke severity or the size of the completed infarct. Yeah. So in a multivariable logistic regression analysis, the only factor that turned out not to be predictive of whether a patient had a good clinical outcome was physician specialty. Uh, The other factors were indeed whether you got successful revascularization and what the time was from from, uh, symptom onset to puncture and stroke severity and what the head CT looked like in terms of completed infarct. Those were all statistically significantly predictive of a good outcome. Specialty was not predictive. Obviously, the eight institutions that chose to contribute their data to this project might not represent the data that every facility would have. But we had over a thousand cases. And I think that it should be very reassuring that interventional radiologists can indeed have outcomes that are not only acceptable, but very comparable to their neurointerventional colleagues.
0: Well, David, like you pointed out earlier, you know, not every hospital should probably be doing, you know, offer it be a thrombectomy center, you know, or a comprehensive stroke center. Not every hospital needs to be off needs to be offering that. Just as this, by the same token, not every endovascular specialist should probably be doing stroke. I mean, if you dive into this without the background, without the education, and as you mentioned, and you just, you know, you're going to go to a weekend course and think you're going to acquire the skills and the knowledge base to do this, chances are patients are going to suffer. And that's really, you know, that's really where it's a valid concern. I think, you know, we talk about, you know, a lot, there are a lot of endovascular specialties. I think, you know, granted, I'm going to be biased because I am, I am an IR. As well as NIR, but you know, the foundation for radiology for radiologists is very good when they do this. If they, if they go through the guidelines, you know, that are in the training document and the stroke training document that you authored, it was this is, you know, you follow these things and you put these pieces in place and you establish this foundation. Your chance for success is a lot higher than if you
2: don't. Yeah, I think that there are going to be some interventional radiologists who won't be good at this. There will be probably some neurointerventional physicians who also might not be good at it, but I don't think that it's going to be the specialty alone that determines whether a physician can have not only acceptable, but really very good outcomes and we should be focusing on the access to care issue how can we solve that rather than getting tied up into the issues of what kind of a pedigree you have it it should be outcomes based yeah
0: i mean you know the tools we have are getting better and better every year on the imaging side as well as the technical side but you know it comes back to it's, you know, it's not just the individual operator, you know, it's, it's the team. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's developing the entire team to do this. You know, we, we, could, we could take, we could spend the whole discussion on just imaging alone, you know, and even that's getting more and more automated. But as we all know, that's not perfect either. And, you know, it takes, it takes a lot more than just a image that says treat on it you know, to take care of a patient who's having a a stroke or maybe isn't having a stroke, but has something else that's mimicking a stroke.
2: I I also think that it's critically important to collect data. we've said in all of our standards papers, including our training papers, that each case should be submitted to a registry, preferably a national registry, so that you can benchmark your outcomes against the outcomes that others at other hospitals. And that's a benefit not only in benchmarking you as an individual physician, but your facility against other facilities. Because as you've said several times, it takes a team to be able to do this. You can have the world's best interventional physician. And if you have poor processes of care, poor team members, then you're going to have bad outcomes. Everyone has to be doing an Excellent job for patients to benefit absolutely
1: I'm glad as we are probably all in agreement that uh, it really boils down to you know having data, sharing that data, and of course, most importantly, what are the outcomes and benchmarks? I know individually we've had these discussions before talking about, well, why not have an interventional cardiologist or vascular surgeon treat stroke? Uh, really, in a sense, there's not a specific reason that they shouldn't simply just from pedigree alone, I agree with that uh, kind of concept that the reality is that if they have training and background and can show acceptable outcomes and and I know that I think there's a facility in South Dakota, I believe uh, that does have an interventional cardiologist who's part of the stroke team and it is about access to care and at the end of the day if if that person's data stands up on their own merit, then it, you know there's no reason that they should not be able to do it and and vice versa there may be as as you pointed out interventional radiologists who are bad at stroke and have no business doing it and likewise neurointerventionalists cardiologists or anybody else and so just because you have a specific pedigree doesn't guarantee certain outcomes and quality and i think you know contributing data sharing data and really looking at data with the analytical eye uh, are going to be the, the key ways to help to you know provide good care to patients and hopefully start to also tackle the issues of access to care. So with that, I really want to thank Dave and Marty for your time. I know we've gone sort of well over the initial planned time, but I think we had some great discussions, you know, great organic thoughts on some of the other kind of related and tangential areas in and around stroke and interventional radiology with stroke. And so I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and hopefully you'll catch us on the next Backtable podcast.
0: Thank you, Vando. Yes, thank you for the opportunity.